you know, it's interesting. I have been a lead pastor for coming up on six years, and all every single day of those six years, there was someone in the church that was pregnant at all times um, until potentially now. I, I, I'm not thinking off the top of my head of anyone that I'm, that I'm aware of that's pregnant. So you know what this means? It means that somebody's going to announce in the next few days that they're actually pregnant. So just wait, that's coming. Uh, God keeps sending babies, and we keep, we, we're so thankful for them. Um, let's turn our attention now to the Word, shall we? When I first came to New York in 2008, I came here as an intern to North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. And uh, that internship was awesome. I had a lot of ministry opportunity, was able to serve the Lord in various ways. One of the things that happened during that summer was I went on a Saturday morning into the church and into the pastor's office, and the pastor, Ed Moore, handed me one of these, and he said, uh, get to work. Now, I was looking at this item, and I said, I, I literally have no idea what this is. He called it a zibby-doo. Um, I'm curious, don't say if you know what it is, but if you know what that is, raise your hand. Do you know what this item is? We got a handful, a smattering here in the building. I had no idea what this was. You have to understand that I grew up um, in Kansas. I grew up on farmland. We had over uh, about 100 acres of land, and uh, we never did anything that would require the use of this tool, which is to weed the churchyard. That is to stick underneath of the roots of the plant and to remove dandelions. So um, that summer, I removed all the dandelions from the lawn, and by the grace of God, they never came back. And to this day, the yard is purified of dandelions. So I used the Zibidu. Now, here's the thing. When he placed this tool into my hands, I knew what it was. I just had no idea what it was for. I could tell you the dimensions of it. I could tell you the, I could describe it to you, but I didn't know how to operate it. For the last month, what we've been doing is seeking to answer the question, what is the message of the Bible? And now that we've grounded ourselves on the Bible's answer to that question, we need to now turn to the natural next step, which is now that we've got the tool in our hands, what do we do with it? What is the purpose of this message in our lives? So knowing that the message is all about life and death, knowing that it is about grace, and knowing that it centralizes around the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where does that lead us? Or if I can put it in a simpler way, now we have the what, but now at this point we need to get to the so what. So for those who have trusted in Christ, you have been given a mission to carry out while we are still here on earth. But what is the mission? So my goal for the next three weeks is to answer that question for us, what is the mission of those who have trusted in the message? And my goal for the next three weeks is to focus on three categorical biblical foundations to answer this question. This week, we are going to begin by declaring emphatically from Scripture that Christians are called to the mission of being the church. But before we dive too deeply in, let me just ask the Lord for His blessing on this service. Let's pray and ask for His help. Father God, we thank You so much for the time that we shared together around the Lord's table this morning. We pray, God, that today we would indeed focus our hearts and our attention and our love on Your precious Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for His shed blood on the cross. We thank You that He died for sinners to save us from our sins. We pray, God, that today that every person in this room who does not know You would hear this good news and believe, and everyone who does know You would be convicted to go on to the next steps of what we do with this message so that we might carry out what it means to be the body of Christ rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Generally speaking, when I am preaching for you, what I will do is I will tell you to turn in your Bibles to a specific text, either a chapter or a section of verses, and I will ask you to stay there so that you can look at that and dissect it with me over the course of our time together. If there are verses that I will reference outside of that text, generally they will be on the screen. But the thing is, today, I am going to be moving through a lot of various verses, and I'm going to move through them so fast that if I said to you, please turn to those verses, by the time that you got there, I would have already moved past them. So what will really help you to absorb this message this morning is to have a pen ready or your phone out and uh, keep record of all of these references that I'm going to be using because I want you to know and to have assurance that I am not teaching you based upon my opinion. I am here to tell you what God has declared in His Word. This is something that is verifiable. It is not something that God has given me a word directly to share to you. It is something that He has presented to all of us clearly and verifiably in the Scripture. So I encourage you to go back and check what I am saying because my responsibility today is to preach His words. So generally speaking, I will have that uh, chapter for you today. I'm just going to share with you those verses. As we've been exploring the message of the Bible, you may have noticed that I consistently used corporate terminology rather than individualistic terms to reference what God was doing. And I did that intentionally. It is owing to the fact that there is no such thing in the entire New Testament as a believer who is ever apart from the body of Christ. The concept of an isolated Christian is completely foreign to the Bible. The Christian life is a communal life. It is this way by design, and God has always intended to redeem not just individuals for Himself, but a people for Himself. And He has always intended these people to operate together as a faithful unit in order to serve Him and to worship Him as a collective, not merely as one person here and one over there. As my mentor Ed Moore, who once gave me the Zibidu, said, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. If you are saved, then your mission is to advance the kingdom of God, and you do that in part by being a member of a local church. My aim this morning is to explain this part of your calling through the following five theological concepts. I want to talk to you about the archetype of the church, the apostolic nature of the church, the affirmation provided by the church, the accountability of the church, and the authority of the church. Let's begin by talking about the archetype of the church that we see throughout the Old Testament. By archetype, I mean the foreshadowing of, the picture of that comes before the church. In the Old Testament of your Bible, you see that God has chosen not just individuals, but a people for Himself. Out of all the nations, God takes one man out of a pagan family and He says, Abram, Go to where I will tell you. And Abram follows him, and he makes a promise to him. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a Christian. No, he does not say that. He says, Abram, I am going to make you into a great nation. He makes a promise that he is going to make a people for himself descended from Abram, who later becomes known as Abraham. The Israelites then come through Abraham's line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, this nation, this group of people, then become the covenant people of God. And the Israelites were a foreshadowing of what was coming in the church. They were called out and told to be separate, just as we are called out and told to be separate. They were delivered from bondage in Israel or in Egypt, rather. We are delivered from bondage to slavery. 
They were given forms and patterns of worship that were supposed to point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and what he would do on the cross. We have patterns and forms of worship that have been delivered to us so that we might look back to what Jesus Christ did in his coming and his ministry and work on the cross. They were given the law of Moses, but as Paul says, we were given the law of Christ. They are the prototypical church. There were certainly isolated heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, but the heart of God was clearly not just set on Moses or David or Isaiah or any of the other major players we see in those first 39 books. I want to take you to a couple of verses that will be very familiar to you so that you can see how God speaks of this in corporate terminology. Exodus 37, uh, uh, 3 verse 7, we see the experience Moses has with God at the burning bush. And in that moment, the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And then three verses later, God adds, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, there were certainly other people suffering in the world. Slavery was taking place in every continent, on every continent, in every country in the world at that time. Everywhere, slavery and taskmasters existed, and everywhere, people were suffering under the rule of evil people. But God does not say to all people everywhere, I am going to go get you out. He says to Moses, I want you to go get my people, my children, Israel, get them out of Egypt. Now, notice God had already brought Moses out. He had protected him when it was the law of the land that he would be thrown into the Nile so that he would drown as a baby. God preserved his life miraculously through putting him in a basket of bulrushes, and then he was raised by Pharaoh's own daughter in the royal household, and then God delivered him so that he went out and became a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. And God says to, to Moses in this moment, Not, hey, I want you as an individual to worship me here. He says, I want you to go back and get those people and bring them out so that they will worship me. They are my people. They are my children, he says. He wants them all to come out so that they might all worship as a unit. Another familiar passage that you're probably familiar with. I think many people have prayed this often during the last year. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This was a promise to national Israel and was specifically referencing their calling to repentance. He says, my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. The concept of corporate worship is ubiquitous throughout the entire Old Testament. The feasts and festivals are corporate gatherings. The major sacrifices, they were not individualistic. They were done nationally, together, on holy days, at the temple. The psalms were designed to be sung in groups by people who would regularly gather to worship. The archetype of the people of God in the Old Testament is all about God setting apart an entire people to worship Him together. And if you are a child of God, this has not changed. God's mission for you is to be a part of a body of believers. The second theological concept to consider this morning is the apostolic nature of the church. And I mean this in two distinct ways, although there are many more. First, I want to speak for a moment about the church and its apostolic origins. To quote my good friend Matthew Shores, who is a pastor in Queens, he says, 
Church planting is God's plan A for the growth of his kingdom, and there is no plan B. In the book of Acts, we see exactly what took place in the early stage of the church. The church was born on the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit arrived. You know the story. They're in the upper room, practically cowering, not sure what was going on, and God filled that room, and he sent miraculous signs to accompany the coming of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, they go outside, and Peter preaches the most effective sermon probably ever preached in all of human history. He proclaimed, and 3,000 people responded with faith in Jesus Christ at the end of that sermon. Powerful. But what exactly takes place after these 3,000 people get saved? After now, there is a gathering of people. There are all these humans who have trusted in Christ. What do we do? Well, Luke tells us directly after this what the next step was for them. He gives us the insight into what the very first church understood their mission to be in the verse directly following Peter's sermon and the salvation of those people. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. This is the calling of every single believer who has ever come to faith in the new covenant. Notice the significance that is placed on fellowship, which is here defined by the breaking of bread and praying together. To clarify, that does not just mean having a meal with somebody. If you walked into McDonald's and you sit down next to a stranger and you have a meal, that's not what's being referenced to in breaking of bread. Culturally, if you shared a meal with someone, it was a sign of accepting that person. It was an acknowledgement of friendship with that person. So by saying that they are breaking bread, he says that they are uniting themselves with these people. And so, he says not only that, but you are to spend time doing spiritual things together with one another. There is a time of prayer together. Fellowship is not merely coming together to have a potluck and whining about the ceaseless misery of being a Mets fan. Now, of course, we can still do that when we gather, and of course, we will certainly still have those conversations because the Mets will continue to be in misery. But fellowship is purposeful in its focus. It is particular to believers. In fact, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, not to have fellowship with unbelievers. Do not have any fellowship with them. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? We are to have no fellowship. That does not mean do not have conversations with them, do not work with them, do not have uh, people that are constantly in your life that are unsaved. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about sexual immorality, and he says, I didn't say to go away from the sexually immoral. If you did that, you'd have to go out of this world, because let's face it, sexually immoral people are everywhere. But he says, do not fellowship with unbelievers. That is exclusively a Christian thing. We are called to have a fellowship with one another. As a Christian, it is your mission to gather and to edify and be discipled by the body. And we're going to explore that aspect of the mission of the church much more in depth next Sunday. But for now, let me simply note this. Everywhere the apostles went, it was for the purpose of planting churches. And the greatest church planter in the history of the world was Paul. And what would he do? He would proclaim the gospel, people would get saved, and then he would leave town. No, I missed a step. He would first establish a church, and then he would leave town. He never simply developed a community and left them to themselves. Instead, he created churches in which people could serve and love and instruct one another in accordance with the scriptures. 
Going back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 that we just read, notice that it was not any random teaching that was being studied. This is the second aspect that I would like to focus on in terms of the church and its apostolic nature. The church is apostolic by the nature of its teaching. These people were not just getting together so that they might read the newspaper. They were not just getting together so that they might discuss current events. They were coming together for the purpose of hearing and applying the teachings of the apostles. The people gathered with this express purpose of learning what they had to teach. And Jesus spent three years with these guys, with these 12 men. He had invested in them so that they were ready when this moment came to shepherd these people. Later, when we arrive at Paul, he refers to himself as an apostle who was born out of season. His letters in the Bible are authoritative because he is an apostle. And I want you to see that Paul says this regarding what must not be done with the message with which we have been entrusted. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes to the Galatian churches, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And that word accursed is the Greek word anathema, which means may they die right now and go to hell forever. There is no harsher terminology that could be employed by Paul. This is the most horrifyingly terrifying thing that he ever says, and he says it for people who are distorting the gospel. So let me be clear. There are things about which churches can disagree. Absolutely. We disagree with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters about the nature of church government and about the role and operations of baptism and who should be baptized. We disagree with our charismatic brothers and sisters about the ongoing function of spiritual gifts. We disagree even within Baptist churches about the role of deacons and the best way to do uh, services and music. And sometimes we just debate with Christians about preference. For example, Pastor Paul mentioned last week, sometimes Christians divide over things as simple as the color of paint on the walls or the carpet on the floor. Now, in terms of the doctrinal questions above, we should absolutely be convinced that there is a right answer, and Scripture tells us what it is. And we should find that. We should act accordingly. But there is room in the, the kingdom for disagreements. So I am absolutely convinced that I am wrong about some things doctrinally. I am wrong about some things theologically. I just don't know what those things are, because if I did, I would change them. But what I can guarantee you is that over the next year, God is going to reveal to me not only things in my life that need to change, but things in my thinking about God that need to change. That's what happens when we are investing ourselves in the Word. And over the course of your life and over the course of mine, we are going to discover more and more and more about who God is. However, there are specific things that must be present in order for a gathering to actually be a church. And there are things that churches cannot depart from and still be a church. In Galatians, Paul is condemning the Christians there for flirting with a false gospel that he refers to as a different gospel. In particular, he rejects the teaching that salvation comes through trust in Christ plus works. He rejects that notion wholeheartedly, and he argues that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. So what's my point right now? My point is that there are many buildings that say the word church on them that do not contain a genuine church. There are many gathering places meeting this morning around the world where people are going to go through some of the same motions that we are going to gather in today. 
But in God's eyes, they are not the church. If a congregation departs from the central message of the gospel, they are categorically and spiritually and biblically speaking under the authority of God. They are not a church. A good read this week would be Revelation chapters 2 and 3. In those chapters, Jesus sends letters to seven churches in Asia Minor by proxy of John the Apostle. And some of these churches are healthy and some of them are unhealthy. But the one thing they all have in common at this point is they were all true churches. But the promise that Jesus makes to them is that if there is no repentance and movement back toward being a healthy church, he is going to do something absolutely shocking. Revelation chapter 2 verse 5, he says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. The book of Revelation is filled with mysterious symbolism and sometimes it can be really difficult when you go to the book of Revelation to know exactly what's going on and how to decipher it. But there are occasions in the book of Revelation where it is glaringly clear because God just straight up tells you, this is what I'm talking about. And this is one of the cases. Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, it tells us what the lampstands are. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And what are the lampstands? The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So notice, if I lost you when I just said Revelation, welcome back. Let's refocus for a moment. Stick with me because this is important. Notice God does not say there is going to cease to be a group of people meeting. He does not say I'm going to eliminate the gathering. In fact, he actually says the opposite. He says, I will remove, remove from among you, indicating that there will still be people there. But he says, I'm going to remove the church from those people. It will still be a group, but it will not be the church. You need to understand that God is promising there will no longer be in that ecclesiological structure any kind of actual church. Simply put, God is saying they're going to move from the category of an unhealthy church to the category of a false church. This is a distinction that you and I need to develop. We have to have discernment because there are many places that will say they are churches. And the question is, are they really in God's eyes? There are some that are simple. The Roman Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, those are not churches. They are false churches because they have rejected the message and they have turned to what Paul calls another gospel. They have turned to a works-based faith. But there are other groups that are a little bit more tricky to discern. Seventh-day Adventists, churches who believe that you are saved by your confession of faith plus your baptism, that baptism saves you. Those are false churches. Those who push the prosperity gospel, they are false churches. They have believed in a false gospel. I want to share with you a quote this is something that was uh, shown to me this week. It is from the website of a church in the New York metro area. This is from their What We Believe page. This is how they explain what will happen at the last judgment. They say, we believe in the final judgment at the end of the age. The righteous and the wicked will stand before him to be judged. Those who have righteousness produced by their own obedience of the faith will be rewarded eternal blessings, but those who are wicked will be condemned. This is a false gospel. If you have to stand in your own righteousness, you will go to hell. 
There is no one person who can stand before God and say, look at how good I am, approve of me, I deserve your love and am responsible enough for my life to receive your glory forever. There is none of us who could stand. This church is teaching a false gospel. I feel weird clapping for a church teaching the false gospel. <laughs> In short, we need to be, a, we need to be aware that there is such a thing as a true church, and within the true church, there's healthy and there's unhealthy. If a church continues to slide towards unhealthy, God removes it from being a church altogether. We need to be discerning about that. So whereas the first two points that we've talked about today, the archetype of the church and the apostolic origin and teaching of the church, those are structural, referring to the universal church. What we're going to do now in these next three, we'll move a little faster, are these theological concepts dealing with what the church, not what it is necessarily, but what it does. Or more accurately, they speak to the reasons why God has ordained that we operate communally rather than independently. So far, we've been speaking about the nature of that, that overarching universal church that is true uh, for every p- single Christian who believes. But the following are about how this works out itself in the local body. So one reason that we have been saved, part of our mission of being part of the church is so that we might find affirmation of our salvation in the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me ask, how do you know if you're a Christian? I mean, how do you know? Can you know? The Bible seems to indicate very strongly that, yes, you can have a confirmation of your faith. But how does that happen? Part of the way that that happens is by knowing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then absolutely, without equivocation, you are saved. But according to the New Testament and its example, every single person who experienced salvation in the Bible then went on to experience the affirmation of their salvation in two ways. The first form of affirmation was the affirmation of baptism. Every time somebody in the New Testament gets saved, the next step is that they are baptized. That is just an outward sign of what God has done on the inside of a person. It is the outward imagery of dying with Christ and rising with him to newness of life. And every single Christian is called to honor the Lord in obedience by being baptized by immersion. Now, this is not something that is to be done outside of the church itself. Baptism is you declaring, I have been saved. And the act of baptism done by the church is an act of declaring, yes, we believe your testimony that you have trusted in Christ. We believe that you are saved. Scripturally, it is the way that the church acknowledged a testimony of saving faith. So if you are a professing believer, but you have not yet been baptized by immersion after your conversion in a true gospel preaching church, then you should take the next step of obedience and you should be baptized. If you're a professing believer and you're in that position, talk to me. I would love to tell you more about how to obey the Lord in this way. But closely related is a second aspect of affirmation, which is church membership. Now, it's important to note that the term membership in the Bible is almost as vacant from the pages of your New Testament as the term Trinity. However, its presence in the New Testament is absolutely just as evident as that of the Trinity. It is clearly represented everywhere. A few years ago, I had a professing believer over to our house for lunch, and we were discussing the nature of the church with her, and she said, you know, I just don't believe in church membership. I don't think it's a biblical thing. For her, it was just a completely foreign concept. And she said, I understand why I would become a member of, you know, a local uh, country club, but that's not a church word. That's not a Bible thing. 
what she failed to understand is that the very reason that the country club uses the word member is because of the church membership. It is because of what occurred in the Bible. Now, there are two places that Paul uses this imagery of being a member of the church most clearly. The first one and larger one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that's where he says, you know, just because you're not an eye, you can't say, I want to be an ear, that whole section about being part of the body. That's where he talks about membership. But for the sake of time, I'm going to take you to the shorter version where he explains this very briefly in the Reader's Digest version in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, where he says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That is where we get our modern usage of the word member. In fact, the Greek word that Paul is using here is the word mele, which quite simply up to that point meant bodily organs. He says you're just a bunch of body parts. You're a finger or a heart or a toenail. You are a body part. And he says you are a body part that require, is required for the function of the whole body to operate together. That's why we use the term membership in modern English. That's why a, a board of directors will have members on it. That is why a country club will have members in it. Because the church explained to people what it means to be a member of a local body. This term body is used all throughout the New Testament to describe the gathered people of God. And the New Testament com- consistently speaks of these people who are in and who are out of this body. And when people were baptized, they were not just being baptized for no reason, they were being baptized into this group of believers. We see that clearly in Romans when it speaks about the nature of baptism itself. These people who were saved and baptized were known and listed by name according to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. These were not people that were just baptized and sent into the ether. They were gathered together and collected and recorded. Jesus only uses the word church twice in the New Testament. And both of those times are regarding making distinctions about who is in and who is not in the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promises to build his church. Remember, he says, you are Peter, you are the little rock, but on this rock I will build my church, speaking of himself. And in that place, in that time, he explained directly after those words that he was going to do so by giving the keys of the kingdom to the disciples. And they were to use them for the purpose of binding and loosing, which is an old, just a very ancient way of talking about confirming or rejecting. So he's basically saying, your responsibility is to display who is in and who is out of the church. That is the role of the keys of the kingdom that have been given to the disciples and passed down through the church. Two chapters later, Jesus speaks about what to do if someone is living in unrepentant sin. And the ultimate answer is to remove them from the church. That's found in Matthew 18, where if somebody's in sin, you go to them. If they do not repent, you bring another person with you and you you try to win your brother. If they still do not repent, then you take it to the church. And if they still do not repent, you cast them out and you treat them as a tax collector or an unbeliever, it says. But you cannot kick someone out of something that they are not in. This kind of church discipline presupposes formal church membership. It is my personal belief that baptism and church membership are intertwined and should go hand in hand. And it's for that reason that I personally will not baptize anyone who would be unwilling to commit themselves to membership in a local church. I do not think that anyone should baptize them. Because we have trusted in the message of the gospel, we carry out that mission in the kingdom by being affirmed by the church through baptism and through church membership. 
And this works hand in hand with our fourth theological category to consider this morning, which is that you are called to be under the authority of a local church. Let's face it, Americans, we are independent people. I'm a Midwesterner, I'm super independent. I understand the nature of desiring to have freedom and to have no one tell me what to do. I don't know about you, but the mask mandate was one thing, but when they said, you can't have people over to your homes, oh no, that is my kingdom, right? You do not tell me what to do in my home, right? We are independent people. We don't like to have authority over us, but the Bible teaches us that there are levels of authority. The government is one system of authority God has given to us, Romans chapter 13. The family is another set of uh, leaders that the government has put over us. If you are a child, you are responsible to honor and obey your parents. If you are a wife, you are responsible to submit to the authority of your husband. Those are unpopular and difficult things to say. We are under authority, but the Bible also teaches that we are under the authority of the church. Let me just give you one example of many that exist. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let me just look at this from two angles for a moment. Let me share with you from my angle what this looks like. First of all, it speaks to church membership in the sense that I am responsible before God for some people. The question is, who am I responsible to give an account for? For whom will I have to stand and say, I shepherded them this way? That's an important question for me to answer. But I think the Bible makes it clear. According to this verse, it is the people who have acknowledged the elders of the local church as their leaders. And to be clear, I will love and I will evangelize and I will help anyone, member or not. But before God, I am responsible to give an account for the members of this local body. But let's also look at this from another angle. This is a command for the members of the local church to be under authority of the church. It is the pattern that we see all through the New Testament that true Christians become a part and gladly welcome the spiritual leadership of those that God raises up among them. You gather into a church and you submit yourself to those in authority. This is not to be some kind of authoritarian dictatorial rule where the pastor becomes king of the church. It's not like that at all. Pastors, elders are still church members. They are accountable to everyone, and they are subject to church discipline if they fall into sin. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 through 3, for example, says, Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being example to the flock. Just like a government can be domineering towards its people, or a husband can be domineering towards its wife, his wife, or just like, just like that, a pastor can be domineering over his church. That is not the calling of the pastor. But it is, regardless, still the responsibility of the, the citizen to be submissive to the, church, to the uh, government and to the wife to be submissive to the husband and for the church member to be submissive to the authority of the church. The message of the gospel has brought us into a new kingdom. And God's kingdom has a divinely designed structure that has been put in place to watch over your souls. And this structure within the church includes the role of elders to guard and to guide. Part of your mission in this life is to be led by the great shepherd of the sheep through the ministry of his imperfect but faithful under-shepherds who care for your souls in the local church. And if you are not a member of a local church, then you have not yet followed the biblical example of submission that the Bible commands of you. So if you're interested in learning more about what it means to be a biblical church member, I encourage you to talk to me. There's a few things in life I like talking about more than ecclesiology, about the study of the nature of the church. Um, but let's move now to our final theological category. And I want you to know we're going to move through this one a little bit more rapidly. 
They're probably rejoicing and celebrating. We're going to move through this one faster in part because we're going to cover this more next week. But for now, I want you to know that we are called to be part of a church because it provides accountability. People don't like accountability. Americans, not Americans, doesn't matter. The church in general does not like accountability. But the American church has displayed this because it has been affected by the disease of consumerism. People just hop from church to church in order to find the best programs or their favorite music or their favorite style that fits their preference. But true biblical Christianity includes being committed to a body in such a way that you know others, in their, you know their lives. One of the things that we never want to become is a megachurch. We do not want to be a megachurch. We want to plant churches because we want to know people's lives. And at some point, you reach the level where you just can't engage and know and shepherd and care for all of the people within the congregation. That's when it's time to plant another church. By God's grace, I'm hoping we get there in the next three to five years that we're sending, sending a church out. Pray for that. But you need to know that part of your responsibility before God as a biblical Christian is to commit yourself in such a way that you are engaging, really engaging with the lives of one another, to know one another, to care for one another, to love one another in a variety of ways. And part of the way that God has ordained to keep you saved is by the ongoing ministry of the saints in the church in your life. Let me give you one example of many that could be used. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 puts it this way. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In the church, you should expect that other saints are watching your life. Not to be a policeman over you, but to care for you like a loving parent guards their children. It is the responsibility of every member in the body. The message of the gospel informs us about how to live, and the accountability of the body helps us to carry that out. Ultimately, you are going to give an account to God directly. You you don't have to answer for all of the people sitting around you, but you do have to answer for yourself. However, you are also supposed to link arms, and for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, pick up others when they fall. We often speak about bearing one another's burdens, and we do so in reference to people's needs. Somebody needs a meal, take them a meal. Somebody needs a coat, give them a coat. If there's a need represented in the body, we care for them. But you'll notice that's actually not what Paul means when he talks about bearing one another's burdens. If you read it in context, he is not talking about helping people when they are hurting. He is talking about helping people when they are sinning. When you become a church member, you are declaring that you are committed to honoring Christ by being accountable to his people, by letting people see who you are. I love how Mark Dever often says that um, Christianity is personal, but it's not private. You do not live a private Christian life. You are to live in the fellowship of the believers. Because we have this message of the gospel, we preach it to ourselves, and we preach it to all those around us in our local congregation so that we might continue on in the work of the Lord together. So, because we have this message of the gospel, we are called to be the gathered people of God in accordance with the apostles' teaching and examples and being affirmed by the church in baptism and church membership and submitting ourselves to the authority and accountability of the church to the glory of God. That is is part of the mission, to be the church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
You say in Colossians chapter 1 that you are the, he is the head of the body. Lord, I pray that every single person in this room would know and trust him and follow him and be committed to him. And Lord, if there is anyone in this room that is not yet saved, I pray that you would convict their heart, reveal to them the gospel so they might believe. Lord, if there is anyone in this room that is saved but has not yet gone under that next stage of trusting and following the Lord in obedience through baptism and church membership, I pray, God, that you would convict the heart and you would help them understand the meaning of these things so that they might obey you and honor you and follow you in these ways. Lord, I also pray that, that we would be submissive to one another, love one another, believe in unity and fellowship with one another so that we might carry out the calling as Christians to display Christ to the world. I pray that this local body would do that in a way that is pure, that those who look on would see that we love one another and that we live faith, faithfully and honorably for you. Help us to be a good representation of Christ. Father God, I pray for every single person in this room that we might be committed to the task of being the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.